The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 43 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, a podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Prior to prepping for this episode, the only Starman I knew was the pink-hued grappler in pro wrestling for the Nintendo Entertainment System. I'm Adam. That's quite a deep pull. Who could hate Impulse? You'll find out soon enough when I launch into my manifesto. Bart Allen is a punk. I'm Michael, and I do hate Impulse. (laughs) And about to cyber force feed myself another bowl of Count Chocula, I'm Steven. Hey, that's about the only Halloween reference you'll get in this episode. Also, can I just say, the only Starman you knew was from Nintendo? What about Jeff Bridges? You know, I have it on VHS. I've never watched the movie. What? John Carpenter movie? Come on, man. I know. One of these days. One of these days. And what about David Bowie? Yeah, but but he's the man who fell to Earth, not Starman. Starman waiting in the sky. Isn't this some Starman? Oh, he's singing now, folks, but no, you lost me on that. No frame of reference, Michael. You went for, like, like the most obscure Starman, whereas there were two just right in front of you. Mm-hmm. What can I say? It's, it's where I live. I love the 80s and the 90s. I love my original Nintendo Entertainment System. Only you would call Nintendo by its full name. <laughs> <laughs> I lived on my Nintendo Entertainment System. You sound like so smug. I had a... <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a retro snob, is what you're saying? Yeah, exactly, yes. Calling me out, calling me out. But you know, it's done with love, I'm going to assume. And love is in the air with this issue, which hit stands in February 1995, as Editor-in-Chief Pat McCallum recounts what he is calling basically the most tragic romantic couples in comedy. So he cites a few here, like Namor and Marina from Alpha Flight, uh, Spawn and Mrs. Spawn, as he calls them, aka Al and Wanda Simmons, those literal love birds, Hawkeye and Mockingbird, and finally, the doomed romance of Daredevil and Elektra. And so I thought it was kind of interesting that he decided to highlight those here. Here's actually what he started to explain. He said, the more I thought about it, the more I went back and checked through some recent and some not-so-recent back issues for some examples of soured relationships. What I found was that while some comic book romances have worked out okay, like Lois and Clark, Scott and Jean, and hopefully one day Phone, Bone, and Thorn, most relationships end in ways that would make Ricky Lake drool. So we decided, though, we're going to go a little bit more positive here as I pose a question to you guys. Do you have a particular pair of star-crossed lovers in comics, of a romance from comic books that you've read that you truly appreciate and always look back on? fondly i mean Uh, for me i have to go with the obvious which is kyle rayner and alex who he found in a refrigerator (laughs) 
That broke my heart as a kid. I was going to say, it didn't last long. No, well, no. I mean, it did. Like, they'd been dating for a while before the story began. But that was, like, issue two or three, wasn't it? It was pretty early on. Yeah. They, they it was about the, the fourth panel that she's in. She's murdered. So. Yeah, yeah. They, they did, yeah, they didn't take very long. How about for you, Michael? You know, it, it's tough. I mean, I'm, I've always been a Oliver Queen Black Canary fan. That That's probably my go-to. But, I mean, you also you can't deny Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy. She's murdered by one of his arch enemies. Whoa, like, what? Spoilers, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we all saw the amazing Spider-Man 2. We know what happens. Did we? Did we all see it? <laughs> We saw, we saw the memes and the gifts of her getting killed, <laughs> for sure. So, Michael, with your love of the Helena Wayne Huntress, I'm really surprised you didn't say, like, Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle from Earth 2. Well, in that universe, though, they're not necessarily star-crossed. They're oh, a couple, okay. you know? And But I've always been a, a fan of the Oliver Queen-Black Canary combo, and I feel like they complete each other, and when they're not paired together, like in the New 52, you lose a lot of both characters, in my opinion. You know what's another good pairing? Is uh, Human Torch and Elijah. Oh, yes. You, you and your that? 90s Fantastic Four. Yeah, because initially he had married who he thought was Alicia Masters, which is a kind of a dick move on his part. Yeah, knowing how Ben Grimm feels about her and their past relationship. Yeah, but then it turned out she was a Skrull, and the Skrull had legitimately fallen in love with him. And he was like, no, I want no part of you. Your alien buddy. I don't want any of that nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> for me it's gonna be a little bit of a broken record i think we can't go a single episode without mentioning mike allred's madman but specifically for me like the quintessential couple of comics in my mind when i think of just the illustrated love affairs and romances are frank einstein madman and his girlfriend josephine lombard because i mean it's just this tale you know that i certainly relate to you know this guy who has body issues except in his case he's a literal reanimated corpse and he thinks he's ugly and can't understand how somebody would love him and yet she is just devoted to him he's so sweet he's so swell you know and they just no matter what she's there supporting him and he just wants to protect her and and love her and be with her he's not trying to go on adventures and get away from her is just every moment if he could he would just spend with her so i just think that's a very sweet relationship yeah it's beautiful having just picked it up within like the last year i love that that as well and staying on the love theme there were a lot of people that loved reading wizard magazine and even more so they loved writing to wizard magazine so steven i think it's time to open up willie lumpkin's mailbag Okay, dear wizard, why does everyone keep saying I suck? I rule. I kick ass. I'm the coolest superhero ever. Get it straight, or I'll swing over there and smash your printing press. From the Spider Clone, New York, New York. So I guess he's writing letters now. <laughs> And I, I just love that the spider clone thinks that Wizard does everything in-house. You know, they write the magazine, they print the magazine. Yeah, and they've got the Gutenberg printing press. So the Wizard response is, 
Why do you suck? Well, I'm not so sure people have anything against you personally. All else aside, you're even kind of interesting. What's bothering people about you is, one, your return means another long, life-ruining storyline for old Spidey. Spider-Man is at his best when the book has a lighthearted feel, and the character doesn't really work if he's forced to be grim and gritty for the 90s. Stuck in some dragged out myself and everyone I love is miserable, so I want to die plotline. Okay. <laughs> Number two. Marvel could have created a whole new storyline for the Spider-Man titles, but instead chose to revitalize a plot that had wrapped up years ago. In fact, the storyline doesn't even jive with continuity as Ronaldo points out in the next letter. Okay, so here's the letter. Dear Wizard, I admit to not buying all of the books containing the return of the exile, a.k.a. Ben Riley, a.k.a. the clone, parentheses, ugh. But there's something I believe everyone is forgetting. If you look back at the Spectacular Spider-Man Annual number 8 and number 149 of that same monthly book, you will see that the high evolutionary discovered what Pete should have known since the 70s. Professor Miles Warren, though brilliant he might have been, was not advanced enough to perform instantaneous cloning. He made genetic viruses with the DNA of Peter Parker, Gwen Stacy, and himself. The purpose of these viruses was to transform someone on a cellular level to a near duplicate of the original DNA patterns. These viruses were used on three totally innocent people to create Carrion, the Gwen Stacy clone, and Spidey's. In fact, in, in 149, it was revealed that Spidey's clone was actually Anthony Serba, the prof's assistant. What? I mean, he is blowing the lid off the Spider-Clone saga. The wizard response is the scary thing about that whole virus thing is that those viruses might have been used more than three times. So there might actually be more than one Spider-Clone out there. In fact, for all we know, there might be 50 clones. Great. Another marvelous idea. Okay, I have a retort. First of all, Adam, if you don't have a snore sound effect, please get one. <laughs> that monologue that Stephen had to read. But you know what it reminded me of? I know you guys don't necessarily like sports, but I listen to a lot of sports talk radio, especially in New York and places like the the fan. And there's always those guys that call in about the Yankees or whatever. Like, you know what the Yankees need to do? They need to do this. Blah, 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 blah. Like, they're like the head coach of the team. And they go on for like a 10-minute tirade. And the commentators have to sit there and listen. That's what I felt like when I heard that guy ranting and raving about nothing. Is it feels like the guys you'd hear in the radio just rambling on them, just like, oh, turn off the radio. Michael ranting about nothing? Nothing? This is not nothing. He is explaining why the Spider-Clone saga doesn't even make sense. He has told us that Marvel already had an explanation for what the Spider-Clone was. It's already been debunked. Ben Riley shouldn't even exist. There is no Ben Riley. You know, like, that's just crazy to me. I was snoring by the third sentence, so I missed a lot. <laughs> a very short attention span on Mr. Kennedy here extremely short it was my it was my very docile read that just was, put you to sleep you were just you're just very melodic and it just soothed me <laughs> that's what I, if you need me if you need me to come to your house every night and read this letter to you before you go to bed i can do it better than <laughs> melatonin steven's voice <laughs> well let me see that if my less than melodic tones my harsh and grating voice keeps you awake for the remainder of the episode here michael because uh, we have a letter that's a little bit of a follow-up to a previous discussion we've had many issues back it's from the market watch section and chris bennett of grantsville west virginia writes in to say dear mark 
which is Mark Wolkowski who was handling that section. First, I realized that Darth Vader and Elmer Fudd were in your intro to the price guide. Then I looked back and found two musicians, Chris Isaac and Eddie Vedder. To quote Jerry Seinfeld, what is the deal? So this is Wizard's response. You know, Isaac and Vedder didn't mind, so why should you? Actually, they were part of our long-running mini-stab at humor. We listed everyone from DJ's Howard Stern to VJ's Martha Quinn in the intro for a few months to see if people would notice. People did. Whether they actually got the joke is a different story. Now we just have a lonely Vader and rapper KRS-One, co-writer of Marvel's Break the Chain, but we've still got our own stars like HCH and JRB, shameless plugs for this issue's interviews, and the roommates from Heck who fought to get in there, artists JCZ and YLA. If you readers want to see some real stars again though, drop us a line. So that's just kind of a fun thing where they were actually putting, you know, actors and characters' names and, you know, TV personalities personalities, whoever, just mixing it up in there. Just more of the Easter eggs that we've come to expect from Wizard Magazine at this point. I guess they gotta do something to keep themselves entertained. Sure. Whatever you want. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Did that sound like sports talk radio to you? No, it just sounded like you. <laughs> <laughs> My obsession with 90s comic book journalism cannot be categorized. That's true. I, I have been working on the last several years peeling back the onion of Adam to understand what's, <laughs> what it is. It'll what be a fascinating tell-all book you write someday. Oh boy, I hope I can sell this. <laughs> But speaking of juicy gossip in the headlines, from Michael's perspective, why don't you take us into... Wizard News. <laughs> I feel like we don't even need to drop in the audio soundbite anymore. You've been doing this for multiple episodes. That's the new Wizard News theme. Acclaim Comics. Was, was that 1010 Wins? Because it's only a New York joke. I don't know. Was it 1010 Wins? That was your 1010 Wins. You they give us 22 minutes. We'll give you, we'll the, give world. you the world. But they were actually featured in the movie called The Paper with Michael Keaton, which is a Ron Howard film. So people might know that then, you know. Yeah, because The Paper was a was a massive blockbuster that everyone it's, remembers. It's a fantastic film. <laughs> I understand that, but it's not like, you know, a, come on, an American classic. Uh, it's classic to me. That's anyway, good. <laughs> now we have to cue the going off theme for when Michael and Steven talk about New York specific trivia. Hit it, me. Rambunctious, fantastically infunctious, nickel beers and hockey games, the chicken wings are scrumptious, you need to change the tire when the rubber gets soft, we don't shirk responsibilities, that's why we're going off, these are the things we love, these are the things we love, classic, classic, I'm on the radio, hey ma, here I am on the radio, hey ma, you're, oh, okay, 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 (laughs) anyway, moving on, (laughs) sorry, Woo, we're early into the podcast and we're already digressing, so Godspeed, everyone. Acclaim Comics, fresh from canceling half of Valiant Comics' line of books, announces that they are publishing comics based on the massively popular card game Magic the Gathering. Wizard has jumped on the Magic bandwagon as well, announcing their new publication, Inquest, will be published quarterly due to the pre-order demand for a single special issue featuring in-depth coverage of the world of fantasy gaming. A subscription form is included in this issue of Wizard. And if, Adam, you make us do any issues of Inquest, I will come to where you live and I will burn every copy you have. 
<laughs> oh, Michael, I would not inflict that on you. There will just be a spin-off podcast that appears in our feed called In Quest We Trust, and we'll just be doing funny voices that definitely will not be us. It'll be all new podcasters. Sounds great. As long as I'm not involved, because I don't like Magic the Gathering, period. Come at me, haters. Come at me. Don't like it. Anyway. More news from Acclaim, as Dan Jurgens explains his reasons for taking over Solar Man of the Atom. Instead of continuing on Superman after issue 100, Jurgens states, I've been on Superman so long, I've been looking for a new challenge for the last couple of months. A company like Valiant is a much smaller place and a bigger chance to make a difference. Okay. Yes, well, I have one issue of the Jurgens Solar Man of the Atom that I picked up recently. Was there a second? <laughs> well, uh, this is actually a later issue, so I think it ran for at least a year. Okay, yeah. sure. Further explanation of the Marvel and Ultraverse crossovers is provided, wherein Wizard is told that Thor and Loki will be part of the God Wheel event drawn by George Perez... Not only that, but Loki will be staying in the Ultraverse after the miniseries ends. On the list of crossovers nobody expected, Silver Surfer and Barry Windsor Smith's Rune will be appearing together in a 48-page one-shot. 48 pages. Oof, that's a long one-shot. So, speaking of Marvel buying the Ultraverse, I have a little bit of an update. This just happened on our social media today as we were prepping for this episode. But we reported last time around that Marvel was buying them, you know, as Wizard stated, that it was due to the state-of-the-art coloring department. That's what Marvel really wanted to buy Malibu Comics for. But then somebody pointed out to us that Brian Cronin over on CBR, who does great work at Comic Book Resource with his Comics Legends Reveal, he actually talked to Tom Mason, who was one of the founders of Malibu Comics, and this is his explanation of the real reason that they bought it. And it says, The mythology of the Marvel coloring desires and the goal of a West Coast presence were created by Malibu as a way of slowing down rumors that Marvel would just cancel the UV titles, the Ultraverse titles, as soon as the deal closed. The real reason that Marvel bought Malibu was to keep the company out of the hands of DC, which had been negotiating to buy the company since April, May of 1994. So isn't that crazy? So really, it was just a move to say, we don't want DC to have any more market share. We're going to buy out this company before they do. Oh, oh interesting. Okay. okay, Tony Isabella, the creator and writer of Black Lightning, has been let go from the recent relaunch of the title he has helmed since the 70s. His replacement will be an Australian writer named David Devarez. Is that DeVere? Uh, DeVries? Sure. Isabella is unhappy with his removal from the book and tells Wizard the reasons were unjust. Ooh, this is not this doesn't look good. When asked if an Australian could be up to the task of writing about an urban American environment, DC Comics editor Pat Gerhe responds snarkily. Is it the same as having a white, middle-class, middle-American, like, Tony Isabella write a black hero? Uh, 2021 called DC, and that doesn't track still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Oh, boy. If I was wearing a hoodie, I'd be hiding my head right now. Proving that they are still the house of ideas... Marvel reveals that Ren and Stimpy number 31 features a special cover of embossed sausages. Nuff said. 
Embossed sausages. I, f- I feel like this is what we definitely are going to have to share on social media because this is left off the list of craziest gimmick covers, I feel like. Sounds like yeah. a, a a sequel to Seth Rogen's Sausage Party movie. <laughs> Embossed sausages coming to a theater near you. <laughs> All right. Okay. Anyway, are you guys there? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'm not getting any laughs here. It was dead silent. I'm like, oh boy. I, I'm, I, I was looking up the cover of this Ren Stimpy, and the cover says Wiener Barons. So it's always funny. Always funny. <laughs> okay. Golden and Silver Age comics auctions have been in the news lately, and it is no different in 1995, where it's reported that Batman number one sold for $29,000, while Detective Comics 38, the first appearance of Robin, sold for $7,000. Even by 1995 standards, that seems low. No, that's a steal, (laughs) yeah. Not that I would say I would throw down $7,000 on the first appearance of Robin, but, you know, in hindsight, pretty cheap. Well, like, if you look, because I think, was it the last issue that was the first issue that covered Action Comics number one? It was not that bad either. Yeah, it was like like $125. Yeah. And now it goes for $2 million. I, I love how you guys say, oh, last issue, because you were gone so long that there was just like this three-month period, and you're just like, oh, yeah, like last issue, and we talked about that last time. It's, it's like the <laughs> Avengers like... Endgame time jump. <laughs> yeah, it's your blip. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, even still, like, you'd think with Batman 89, Batman Returns, and Batman Forever, Batman number one would be worth more than 30 grand. Like, that seems real low. I don't know. I find that odd. Anyway. Let me get back to the, back on track here. Captain America number one sold for $32,000, and original art pages from early issues of Fantastic Four and X-Men sold for between $3,600 and $4,800 per page. Again, very, very cheap by today's standards, but I just find that fascinating. It's like... Was CGC not a thing yet? Like, was were, were they not grading comics like they do today? No, not at this point. It didn't come around until 2000. Actually, Jesse Thompson, who we just had on the Wizard Files, was one of the first to report on it in Wizard Magazine. And, and we actually had somebody else, Lars Pearson, who was the price guide manager, who went and toured the CGC facilities during that era as well. So, yeah, it, it was not a thing in 1995. Right. All these numbers were like, wow, that's... Seven grand for a Robin and even, you know, 30 grand for Batman. I'm like, wow, that's that's not terrible in comparison to what it would be worth today. Maybe it was an investment. Maybe they held on to it all these years and they are literally the same copies are being sold at an auction as we speak. They, they probably would be if they were smart. Finally, Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti were interviewed by MTV about their work in comics in a segment that had yet to air at the time of this publication. But Joe Casada relates that, I've been a musician longer than I've been a comic book artist. Isn't it ironic, don't you think, that I've always... (laughs) I've been a musician longer than I've been a comic book artist. Isn't it ironic that I've always wanted to have my music video on MTV and I got my comic book company instead? I don't know if I would call it my company. I mean, he's the editor in chief, but is he? Well, this wasn't Marvel Comics. This was Jimmy and Joe's event comics. So it actually was their company. 
Oh, okay. Well, I missed that part of the. I didn't realize that. Well, there you go. Well, then that makes sense. Okay. I mean, I, I just think it's hilarious that Joe Casada still considers himself basically I'm a musician who does comics, right? Because like on his headstone now, it's going to say former editor in chief of Marvel Comics. I mean, that is his legacy. I think even maybe aside from his art, he was in charge of you know what became the most popular entertainment franchise. Yeah, <laughs> a jam man. I'm like metal. Yeah. Granted, if if, if you follow Greg Capullo's Instagram, he's sh- Reds in the guitar and he's got jacked up muscles but that guy is metal like that guy is a rock star well the crazy thing is he's on cameo now is he oh, really? that'd, be fun. that'd be awesome yeah i just saw it today so i feel like he could like do be shredding some licks and then give us a wizard intro for the podcast <laughs> that's funny but you know going from a beefcake like greg capullo to a nice steak uh, that you might get for your Valentine's Day dinner. How's that for a transition? Yes, I think it's time that we get into the meat of this issue with our table of contents. And speaking of getting ripped, uh, on the cover of this issue, number 43 of Wizard Magazine, we have Rip Claw and Warblade. It is a mashup cover by Scott Clark and Sal Regia that is promoting a crossover between the two razor-fingered image characters in Warblade, Endangered Species. I, I don't know why this is on the cover. Nobody read it. I mean, somebody probably read it, but, you know, it's like... No, 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 you're right. Nobody read it. (laughs) Go with your gut. Not one single human being read it. So the crazy thing about this, though, is that uh, in the Wizard Big Book of Covers, it seems that nobody at Wizard read it either, because this is literally the shortest description of a cover. There's no story, there's nothing behind the creation of it. It just says, a tie-in to Image Comics' Warblade Endangered Species crossover miniseries starring Wildcats, Warblade, and Cyberforce's Ripclaw. End of story. No commentary. We're just getting it out there, folks. Okay, I I gotta just... I gotta just butt in. I'm so sorry. I have to butt in. I looked up Greg Capullo's cameo right now. For personal use, $30. For business, $210. What are we? We're not necessarily a business. (laughs) I don't even know. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a Patreon currently that's active, so it's one of those things where I guess if one of you fine listeners out there, you know, Christmas is coming up, if you want to gift the podcast a Greg Capullo intro where he's like, hey, I'm Greg Capullo, and you're listening to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. We accept. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, because we once got a a Heather McComb cameo for the Generation X episode. That predates when it was personal or business, but that was personal. Heather McComb is talking to wizards, and this time it's personal. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. But staying with Warblade and Wildcats, you know, that book is actually currently being written at this time by James Robinson, who is the subject of the interview Reaching for the Stars, which is about his rise in the comic book industry. So the British author got his break from Matt Wagner, who hired him to write a Grendel series. So he then just picked up, moved to Los Angeles to write comics professionally, but then the publisher 
Comico went out of business. Luckily, there was an editor from Comico that ended up at Dark Horse and hired Robinson to write a series of stories based on the Terminator, which is really interesting when you think about it, because we were just talking about Alex Ross last issue and how his first work really was on a Terminator comic at Dark Horse. So I guess you just, if you work on the Terminator, you're going to be a superstar in the industry. Great starting point for you. Those were big back then, I remember, like the Terminator books, the Alien books. Those were big comics. Yeah, they were. Yeah, those licensed properties. But now a bigger break came for Robinson when he started writing Legends of the Dark Knight after being hired by editor Archie Goodwin. And then he eventually ended up at Malibu writing the critically acclaimed Firearm for the Ultraverse line of books. All the while, he was floating this idea of a Starman series to DC, but first was asked to write The Golden Age, this miniseries starring the Justice Society of America, and then do a Vertigo book called Witch. Craft. So it's just like this guy was all over the place. Like, just everybody's like, hey, where's the work? He's like, I'll take it. Well, you got an assignment, I'll take it. But, uh, Michael, I know that you are a big fan of the Jeff Johns run on Justice Society. But for you, like, did you ever go back and read this Golden Age miniseries? I did not read the Golden Age miniseries. I know of it very, very well, but I've never read it. But I, I do like pretty much any JSA stuff. I just find it so interesting, and I like other heroes other than the main Justice League line. Well, apparently so did James Robinson, which is why he was wanting to get this Starman series off the ground, and that is where he is getting the most press in the comics world from Wizard and elsewhere. And this is a series that spun out of the Zero Hour event to DC Comics that we covered, and has really been cited repeatedly by our social media followers as the best thing to come out of, you know, what most consider a lackluster crossover. Uh, For those who are not aware of what Starman is about, it's the story of Jack Knight, who is a guy who is reluctantly taking over the mantle of Starman from his deceased brother, who dies in the opening pages, who was in turn following in the footsteps of their elderly father, who was the original Starman and protector of this place called Opal City. So, did you guys ever check out the Starman comic? Have you ever picked up an issue? I remember this particular run being a big deal in Wizard. I don't know if I got an issue, but I do remember like all the hype around it. I never read it. I'll be honest with you. I have not. I, I only know of really the, the Starman that came out of the Jeff Johns run. Yeah, and I wanted to talk to you about that, Michael, because I just started watching the uh, CW Stargirl on HBO Max, and that is like a totally different origin. That is a Starman who was originally the Star Spangled Kid, who had his adult sidekick Stripesy, and he had the staff, and that's where that came from that goes to the Stargirl. And so I didn't realize they like totally like created a whole new origin and a whole new character mixed into those mythos of which there were many Starmen at DC at different points. Yeah. Yeah, because I was expecting this uh, Jack Knight character to show up at some point. I was like, where's he going to show up? But he didn't. I just said we got Stripesy. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll say of the of the CW shows, though, the, the Stargirl show is pretty darn good. That and Superman and Lois are pretty darn good. Oh, it is. Yeah, I, I think it's just like it's such a contrast to something like Titans, which is just so dark. Like those characters are so angry. And this one is just kind of like sweet. And, you know, it's a nice family show. 
I honestly turned off after the first episode of Titans. I couldn't get through it. I was like, right, yeah, no, I tried so many times to watch Titans and I, I keep trying because now I have HBO Max and like, my God, it's just so it's so much. It's like so in your face, like with like, you know, violence and uh, vulgarity, which is fine normally, but it's the Teen Titans. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I want them to be fun and and silly and ridiculous and have like you know angsty teen drama not like this over the top just like gratuitous violence i, I don't know it's and not I, for I, me. I don't like angry dick grayson it just it's no 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 goodness no <laughs> but guys i gotta say if you want a good time if you want a good read i if you want a good time <laughs> hey if you want a good time <laughs> give me a call but uh, so I was at RetroCon a couple weeks back, a great convention out in Pennsylvania, and I was you know walking the floor looking at all the vintage fun stuff, and there was a booth that had a bunch of 90s comics. It actually was a dollar box of 90s comics, and so I'm digging through it, and I found like the first 10 issues of this James Robinson Starman run, including the Zero issue. So I started reading it because I was just like, I've always wanted to know more. I knew it was coming up on the show, and guys, it is fantastic fantastic like from issue one just you know the art style is really unique and a lot of shadows but it's definitely got kind of like a punk edge to it but just the story itself and the character it was so appropriate that i found it at retrocon because this jack knight his whole thing is he doesn't want to be a hero he kind of makes fun of his family's superhero legacy his whole thing is selling antiques he is a collectibles and antiques dealer who is always talking about like old toy lines and you know different autographs of celebrities from old tv shows and things like that like it's like a hundred percent me it's like if i was going to be a superhero i'd probably be the guy who had all these collectibles and then yeah i just lucked into having some sort of power i just i connected instantly with him and it is so much fun but i mean like also just the story just the way that it's all put together because there's a lot of levels there's the legacy aspect and then there's just like the whole city and then there's a villain who's coming out of the woodwork after many years to destroy their family. There's a lot of like bitter feelings with the family. So there's a lot of drama going on there. And it's like a real complicated relationship between him and his older brother who died, who actually manages to come back as a ghost in a one-off issue. And they kind of resolve their issues in a way. Like there's just, there's so many directions that James Robinson takes this. And there's just a lot going on. It's very deep. And just the more you read, the more it just develops. It's not like... Like a, you know, one and done type thing. And then they ran out of ideas. So, Stephen, if you're looking for something cool to read after Madman, check out Starman. I know. My God, it's been so hard to read anything lately. Like, I've been, like life has been so busy. It's really impossible. Like, I, I barely was able to get through the Batman 89 first issue and the Superman 78 issue. And I was like on the train trying to do that. And that's all I got so far in a while. Well, here's hoping the universe writes itself and gives you that precious time you need to be reading old and new comics. So yeah, big thumbs up for Starman. Uh, But this next article is pretty interesting too. It's called TMNC, and it is a feature explaining how to copyright or trademark your original creations, you know, how to protect your intellectual property. I don't know how many of our listeners out there are like me. Basically from sixth grade on, I was creating my own superheroes and writing stories and drawing the comics and all those things, you know. Uh, That was something I was definitely interested in, and I didn't understand, you know, 
well, how would I create this character that, oh wait, it popped up, somebody else did the same thing. So it says here, quote, the copyright cannot protect the idea of x-ray vision. It does, however, protect the manner in which you express and illustrate the idea of this power, end quote. So basically, the details of your character's origin can be copyrighted. The character name, the way you create the story, right? But you can't just say, well, my guy has x-ray vision, so nobody else can. Now, on the other side, a trademark is a symbol, word, or logo used to sell things. So it's all about who used it first and who filed the paperwork for it. I found it really interesting. You have to pay a separate fee for each class or type of merchandise that you want to register your trademark for. It's really funny. They, they use an example saying that Hostess is a trademark associated with gooey snack cakes, but could also be used by another company to sell basketballs because they're two different categories of products. And I just find that hilarious, you know? Yes, we have Hostess snowballs, but imagine if you're walking down the sports aisle and you have Hostess basketballs. Come on, get on it. <laughs> I'd buy those. <laughs> I want the Drake's Cake soccer balls. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of putting something hot and tasty in your mouth, no, this is a not, uh, no need for damage control. <laughs> Come on. Hot Off the Griddle is a comedy article that is in many ways a sequel to the great comic book endurance test from issue 41. You guys weren't on for that, but our guests from the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast, this drove them crazy. They were just destroying comic books in creative ways. But instead, here, wizard correspondent John Seals has set out to test the phrase selling like hotcakes by setting up a griddle in a comic book store and offering patrons either a free flapjack or a free comic book and then tallying up the results. You know what that tally involved? Kind of sounds like something I would have come up with, huh? It kind of does. So along the way here, as he is taking part in this test, John Seals served up three different people named Bob Parker, which I just thought it was so weird. He says like, you know, there was like an old man named Bob Parker. There was a guy with his kids named Bob Parker. And then at the end, there was a young boy named Bob Parker. Don't know what was going on there. Are they from alternate realities? You know, is this a multiverse situation? But also he said he was rejected by multiple people saying they didn't read comics, which was odd to me. It's like, why are you in a comic book store if you don't read? read comics and then there were also cheapskates i guess who couldn't turn down free food so they were literally just there for the pancakes now in the final analysis 66 people chose comics and only 21 people gobbled up pancakes the most popular comics were x-men and spawn while the bottom two Michael, brace yourself, were Batman Adventures and Shadow of the Bat, which I find so strange. Really? Batman? Bottom of the list. In the middle there was like some Star Wars comics from Dark Horse. But Seals closes by stating that, quote, So as you can see from the numbers above, comics don't sell like hotcakes. They sell a whole lot better. It's a tough choice eating my food or reading something like Spawn. To be honest, a choice like that would give me a serious case of indigestion either way. <laughs> So yeah, I don't know. That was just a fun article. I really lived for this type of comedy in the magazine. Like, how ridiculous can you get? So I have to ask one question. Who called the pancakes flapjacks? Because if you're from the Northeast, you've never used that term in your life. I guarantee it. It's just a funny word. I wanted to mix it up a little bit. I want to say pancakes over and over again. Flapjacks. Uh, 
<laughs> Here's the thing. I at this point in my life, I would probably choose flapjacks because <laughs> <laughs> you don't have time to read comics even over breakfast. Yeah, you know, a good flapjack and you know, nothing like it. <laughs> but looking at the picture of what the setup was for the pancakes. I would choose the comics. This looks like the most disgusting <laughs> setup for. It's just like this like table with a bunch of crap on it and with bottles a creepy of creepy guy with a hairnet on. Yeah, and like an apron. I, it's just I'm going comic just because for sanitary reasons. Mm, very good, sir. Even if it's one of the spawns, I'll take that over a flapjack. I, 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 I mean, if you ask me, what they really should have done is offered a comic called Flapjack. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like you're offering a pancake, you're offering a comic. What about meeting in the middle and seeing if anybody wanted to read a comic about a pancake? Uh, that, that would have been my punch-up to the whole idea. I thought this was going in a direction where either he would give you the comic book or you could grill the comic. <laughs> would have been amazing that's what i thought he was going to wow well i mean the flapjacks were flying fast and furious it seemed like there was no sign of slowing down and speaking of not slowing down that is the title of this next interview with mark wade and flash editor brian augustine about the changes in the book starting with issue number 100 which will change the title from just flash to the flash which is something i didn't realize was an issue I don't know, like, I guess when Wally took over the book, did they change it to just Flash? I have no idea. Good question. But it's stated that in these storylines, Wally West will disappear into, quote, we're calling it the Speed Force for the want of something genuinely compelling and interesting. I just think that's kind of fascinating as well, that they were using Speed Force almost as a placeholder. And how many years are we later that the Speed <laughs> Force is just like, when you talk about the Flash, it's synonymous. It's on the yeah. TV show. It's on everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're also teasing that someone else will take up the mantle of the flash after issue 100 and the article is basically just teasing the idea of which of the supporting cast members it could be is it max mercury is it jesse quick is it johnny quick is it impulse fat chance says mark wade <laughs> or could it be wally himself as wade and augustine state quote regardless of who it is in the suit even if it is wally coming out on the other side of new knowledge and self-knowledge that comes with the ultimate power would make it a new character uh, it's also explained that the new flash will have additional powers beyond super speed that include kinetically charging objects they vibrate through so that they explode which is kind of cool it's kind of like gambit right but you just you're running through things this is a very celebrated run mark wade on the flash did you guys read any of this back in the day or have you revisited it over the years I constantly see the trade paperback and like the, the full volume of it in the comic shop, and I always want to buy it, but then I just never do, and I, I've wanted to, but I haven't read it. Yeah, I think I had a couple issues back in the day, but nothing that I was a regular reader of. Okay, yeah, because it's something I, I always hear people talking about online, how great it was. I, as much as I loved the Flash TV series, I never really got into the comics because I was watching Barry Allen on TV, but it was like, that's Kid Flash. I don't want to read about Kid Flash. So I, I just never got into it. And plus, at this time in particular, Gen 13 was coming out, and that was taking all my money and my attention. So, <laughs> um, But in preparation for this episode, I read the Terminal 
Velocity arc and then the, the issues after number 100. Because all in comicsology, I said, I'll check it out while I'm in the bathroom. Gentlemen, that's the time you read comics. Come on. <laughs> seal yourself off in there. But uh, I thought it was really interesting because, yeah, it really does have a huge supporting cast in there. And I had to say something which really ticked me off, though. Because in the comic itself, like, they're actually literally talking about Wally's saying, look, we're going to have to fight this bad guy. I'm going to have to go into the Speed Force. And if I do that, I might not come back. So somebody else is going to have to take over the mantle if that happens, blah, blah, blah. And Jesse Quick is this female speedster who actually is chosen. He's talking to Impulse and he's saying, like, I hoped it would be you, but you're not ready. And so he says, Jesse, you're going to take over. The next issue, she's got a flash insignia on her outfit and she's getting training. He's teaching her all this stuff. But then after they do their whole adventure and spoiler, Wally is the one who does continue to be the flash. <laughs> he takes it back from her and explains that was Impulse all along. He wanted to take over, but he was using her as bait to get him to change his attitude and i was so ticked off i was like that is terrible wally west <laughs> you're a terrible person yeah then he says like hey so do you think we could be friends and she's like not likely <laughs> she's like you totally used me next time just be straight with me you jerk like i was like wow honestly i love the idea of jesse quick becoming the flash you know even in the in the flash tv show when she's got like a similar costume mm-hmm. it's just an interesting take on the character and it would be kind of fun nobody likes impulse just like nobody likes damian wayne <laughs> whoa i love damian wayne no you don't don't yes don't i lie. do yes i do He's a murderer, though. You like you like nice Robins. Yeah, but I like that he allowed Dick Grayson to become Batman. Yeah, fair enough. Well, so, but Michael, you know, you've you've mentioned in the past that you actually have a strong aversion, we'll call it, to impulse. What what is the reasoning behind that for you? Okay, part of it is when Infinite Crisis happened and Wally dies again (laughs) impulse like runs super fast and sort of like ages himself up to adulthood in the thing and he becomes the flash for a while and so bart allen is the flash for a little while and he's terrible sometimes he's a bad guy in good comics and he's a good guy he's just kind of snarky and annoying in the new 52 when he's in in the Teen Titans, he's really annoying. It's just not a good character, and they don't. It's another one of those characters they just don't know what to do with. I don't know. It just doesn't do it for me. He's not cool. He's not. Yeah. Fun. Well, it, what's interesting is like with Impulse to me, it was always the art. I didn't like how they drew him so cartoony. And what was interesting is in these early issues, he's drawn like a teenager, and he actually looks pretty cool. I thought, but then when they kind of reintroduce him, he gets his own series. He just looks like a cartoon cartoon character and he was so annoying to me like even just the visual that i never wanted to check out a comic with impulse in it that was why i stayed away yeah it just doesn't do it for me does not do it for me but speaking of staying away maybe off into the cosmos spanning the generations is an article covering star trek comics being published by both malibu and dc who have different licenses for different shows but my best friend jeff and his co-host greg have a new podcast called trekology that is a lot of fun so rather than make you guys talk about star trek comics michael and steven i'm going to record a bonus discussion about this article with them you could look out for that a little bonus conversation but what we do have to talk about here is an article called what's shaken an interview with veteran comics writer artist howard 
Chaikin. Now, quickly, Chaikin broke into comics at age 19 as an assistant to artist Gil Kane and eventually began writing mainstream books. He wrote Star Wars for Marvel and Micronauts and Blackhawks at DC and The Shadow. So he was working for the big two, but he is more celebrated, at least, you know, old school comic fans for his gritty independent books like American Flag and Black Kiss, which there's a hilarious quote here because Chaikin admits that his book Black Kiss was, quote, not more or less porn, definitely. Definitely porn. <laughs> and I sold a lot of books, too. I was very happy with it. Sex sells. That was what Chaikin knows. Eek. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Chaikin was also writing a lot of TV at this time. Does the name sound familiar at all, Michael and Steven? It does, actually. It does. It actually, yeah, it, I recognize it, but I don't know what... Yeah, so we just mentioned it. The Flash TV series. He actually wrote, like, a huge chunk of episodes for the Flash TV <laughs> show. Really? Okay. Yeah, and he also wrote viper do you guys remember viper oh i love viper (laughs) i love that show (laughs) oh my god a big fan of that show that and thunder in paradise were shows that i loved (laughs) wow he he wrote some really good flash episodes too he wrote the trickster episodes the deadly nightshade episode wow he's a super comics fan you know he's not just one of these guys who also happens to work in tv i'll write some comics whatever like he loves comics and he actually singles out chris claremont as quote the single most important talent in comics in the last 15 years. He invented the contemporary language of comics. Comics are what they are today because of what Chris did with the X-Men. So he just flat out says that. Not a theory, actually. Fact. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, now. Chaikin is also very matter-of-fact about his job as a writer. He says, quote, I love comics, but we're a very tiny blip in a big culture. We have to understand how small we are. All those millions in sales we hear about are actually greedy little putzes buying unopened boxes of comic books. I just don't have any pretensions about my work. <laughs> so he said basically all the people who think like Watchmen is high art and all this stuff, he's like, they're great stories, but to the rest of the world, they're not art, at least at this time. Time. Hmm. So I just thought that was an interesting take because I think at least the properties, you know, like that we get nowadays are much more celebrated. But I still think to the same respect, like comic books as a medium are maybe not any more respected, even though the characters, you know, other media have stolen. It seems like it's really not changed too much. It's like comics are comics. But do you guys feel like there's more respect when you talk to people about reading comics? I mean, a little bit. I, I think obviously people know these characters much much more now than when you know we were kids but do they go back and read the source no, material no, no nobody does we would have way more comic book stores comic book stores wouldn't be going out of business wouldn't have to rely on magic the gathering to keep them yeah. in business but they don't judge you as hardcore as they used to when no, you say true. you read comics they're just like oh have you read the comics that they're based on and you're like yeah i never have the end <laughs> I can't say anymore. What I find very frustrating is when I see people out in the world, and let's say they have like a Batman tattoo or like some sort of superhero related thing, or like a, like a Punisher symbol on their car. I'm like, oh, are you, are you a Punisher fan? No, I just like the symbol. It's badass, man. Or like, no, I, I, I like Batman. I'm like, oh, do you read the comic? No, I've never read a Batman comic in my life. I'm like, and we've talked about this in the past, Michael, but what I've come to realize is we might be having a little bit of a double standard only from the perspective of 
of what got us into comics. It was the cartoons. It was the movies of our childhood. But we took the next step to actually go and read. But we didn't start with the comics, did we? Like, if we're like real love, like uh, of reading constantly and buying them every week or every month. I mean, I guess probably for me, it was really probably like the Superpowers cartoon show. Right, that kind Batman of, you know, 89. Yeah. yeah. Well, even before, even before that, I had Batman action figures and Robin action figures long before that movie. So yeah, you're probably right. The cartoon show, like the, you and know. the toys and everything else. Yeah. Like yeah. it all leads into, so there's always the potential for somebody to read, but it's just like, how do you get them to cross that threshold? That's the hardest part. They're not reading them. They're not. <laughs> the, the only thing is like when, when you see someone with a Punisher symbol on their car, you have to wonder, do they like Punisher or are they a mass murderer? Yeah, I, they, I, it could go either like way. They yeah, exactly. Enjoy being violent. Yeah, do I like Punisher or am I a maniac? Uh, you know, it's either or. Anyway, that's my take on Punisher. <laughs> Punisher. Wow. <laughs> Bleep. <laughs> Happy Halloween, geeks! Yes, the spooky season is upon us, and have we got a treat for you. How about 20% off at HalloweenCostumes.com? Why HalloweenCostumes.com? Because they have the biggest and best selection of costumes, accessories, and decorations for your Halloween celebration. No kidding. They have the absolute best-looking She-Hulk and Rogue costumes we've seen anywhere, and many more amazing costumes exclusive to HalloweenCostumes.com. For the fellas, there's Jim Lee-style Cyclops and Gambit, your choice of Wolverine in classic blue and yellow, or the brown costume complete with arm hair? Huh? They've got you covered for DC Heroes too with the classic Shazam, the dynamic duo of Adam West Batman and Yvonne Craig Batgirl, or even a CW Green Arrow. Whether you want comics accurate or ripped from the silver screen, their enormous selection of costumes and accessories has you covered. Best of all, you can get these costumes for a great price by using the link in the episode description. Yes, your buddies at Wizards are hooking you up. Just click the link and a 20% discount will automatically be applied to one item in your cart. The offer is valid through November 6th, 2021. So get on it, geeks, and visit HalloweenCostumes.com. All right, well, talking about those movies and TV shows that might bring in those comics readers, Stephen, why don't you take us into... Heroes in Motion. So first up, apparently now seems to be the time for the image titles to prosper on, on the screen. Spawn is currently at New Line Cinema with a script in progress. As to who the screenwriter and director are, well, that's still a mystery. Since mum's the word from everyone over at Toddyville. <laughs> the project is slated to go into production in 1996 with ILM doing all of the special effects. So expect the character of Spawn to be completely 100% computer generated. McFarlane insisted that ILM, the company that produced the graphics for Jurassic Park, be a part of the project. I thought okay. that was really interesting. They were thinking of fully CGI Spawn. And if anybody has watched the Jurassic Park episode of the movies that made us that just came out on Netflix, yeah, that so guy good. Spaz Williams and his Mark Dippe 
like they were the guys who ended up directing the spawn movie so you obviously todd was very connected with the ilm guys and that's how he got them over there so and what a joy that movie turned out to be <laughs> uh, john leguizamo says he wants to come back as the clown fantastic yeah uh, i like john leguizamo i can't say i like the spawn movie <laughs> But anyway, so next up, Marvel's Daredevil film is currently over at 20th Century Fox with director Chris Columbus, who is also helming the new Fantastic Four movie, and producers Ben Myron, Tony Ludwig, and Alan Rich, the same trio involved in the big screen Bonanza film and the Mod Squad with Aaron Spelling over at MGM. That is a paragraph of mostly movies that did not happen besides Mod Squad. Yeah, of all, <laughs> of all films. And I had no idea that Chris Columbus was basically going to be the director of Fox's Marvel Universe. That is crazy. He was the guy. And he's still never done a superhero Never. Movie, How is that is possible? Bananas. You'd think he'd dip his toes into the MCU at some point. <laughs> it's bananas, guy. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, he's doing uh, the second Santa Claus movie uh, over at Netflix. Yeah. Another piece of news here is that the Tick is becoming a animated series over at Fox, and they've increased the order, and the cast includes Townsend Coleman as the Tick, Mickey Dolenz as Arthur, Kay Lenz as American Maid, and in a guest shot, Roddy McDowell as the villainous Breadmaster. How about it? You love Roddy McDowell, no? I love Roddy Bookworm. McDowell. Bookworm! Bookworm, Fright Night, the Planet of the Apes movies, Mad Hatter on Batman the Animated Series. I saw him in a performance of uh, A Christmas Carol in the, oh. in the 90s. He played Scrooge. And I've seen Mickey Dolan's live when I was a kid as part of this, like, history of rock and roll concert series at a county fair. <laughs> uh, I, I do love the monkeys. I'm a big monkeys fan. But what's interesting about this, I thought, was that Ben Edlin, the guy who created The Tick, you know, he's talking about, like, how he was actually doing all the storyboarding and the writing. And he's like, I thought I was moving pretty fast, but apparently I'm holding everything up. Like, everybody's <laughs> mad at me because I'm not producing to TV the you know, lead time they need to get all the animation done and all that, which was pretty funny. And then there's also, uh, he talks about here, the show is a pretty good take on the comic. We're limited in some ways by broadcast standards and practices. In one show, we had a lounge full of superhero sidekicks, and it was suddenly indicated that they were sexually involved with their superheroes. It was a quiet thing, but we could come nowhere near that for the TV, and so a lot of the jokes had to change. However, that did show up on the live-action Tick series when that happened, so it's interesting they were able to make it a little bit more adult eventually. So, anyway, great show. I'm sure we will be getting more Tick news. I do love the Tick. In another piece of news, Harvey returns to animation with Universal, uh, Harvey Entertainment Company and Universal Pictures have signed a deal establishing a new animation studio on the Universal lot, the Harvey Universal Animation Company. It says the new animation studio will initially develop two television series based on the Casper and Richie Rich characters beginning in early 95. A live-action Richie Rich movie starring Macaulay Culkin was released this past Christmas, while a Casper movie produced by Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment is slated to open Memorial Day weekend in 1995. I love both these movies. I think they're a lot of fun. I do too. Okay, good. So I'm not crazy. <laughs> I remember the Pizza Hut promotion for Casper well. I don't remember that. I don't. It was those puppets. Remember they did like Land Before Time puppets and they did yeah. like Eureka's Castle. They also did a series of the Casper puppets that you could well, get. Well, there you go. Uh, and, and the final piece of news is that Daria, the popular female character on Beavis and Butthead, will be spun off into her own series next year. La 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 la. 
<laughs> that is a show you. I watch on Pluto TV now because I missed it when it initially ran, and I really like it. It's a lot of fun. It was classy. I think, I, yeah, it was a step up from Beavis and Butthead for sure. But Michael, I think it's time we uh, talk a little bit about doing some collected, you know, those little rectangular pieces of cardboard. So why don't you take us into Gambit's deck of cards? So, Skybox is producing the Adventures of Batman and Robin trading cards with the gimmick that the box actually folds into a Batmobile with a Gotham City backdrop. Not only that, 12 pop-up character cards are made so that they can actually sit in the Batmobile box. There's also Dark Knight heat-sensitive chase cards that reveal a secret about Batman when you rub your finger over the blackened area. <laughs> so it's an odd phrase. Definitely not something I would think I would ever say in my life, but yes. <laughs> but isn't that cool? They turn the box into a Batmobile, and then you can put the cards in the Batmobile like they're driving it. It turns from a box back to a Batmobile, then back to a box again. Can you believe it, guys? Now how much would you pay? <laughs> oh, boy. Boy, comics. <laughs> Skybox is also producing a 90-card set based on the Lois and Clark, the new Adventures of Superman, which will sell for just a buck 19 a pack and include fully painted foil enhanced hollow chip chase cards. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Oh, my God. By Boris Vallejo and his wife, Julie Bell. I want to meet somebody that actually bought a pack of Lois yes. and Clark cards. Yeah, no $1.19 is overpriced, in my opinion. But... <laughs> no one would have bought those. No one. I don't care how much you would have liked the show. It was not a thing you were buying. As promised, last issue, it's revealed that Fleer is producing the Batman Forever card set, but no mention is made of the sticker card sets from tops so i don't know if that was like a last minute deal but yeah we talked about it last episode that i have a pack of each it's just like tops is left out of the equation when it comes to batman forever huh. we almost made it a whole episode why do i get nailed with this <laughs> Yeah, uh, get ready to put some money in the jar, Michael. I got this covered. I've been thinking about this all day. We almost made it an entire episode without mentioning he who will remain nameless has a deal with Skybox to produce a 90-card set based on his Youngblood comics in addition to Magic Motion Wiggle cards. What? <laughs> there oh, you didn't also... get those? No. Uh, did, did you? No, no, of course not. <laughs> there I've are never also, even heard of them. Neither have I. They, they, you know, they went out with the dodo. There are also two instant winner cards to be found in all of the boxes shipped that will grant the recipient an all-expenses-paid trip to hang out with the Extreme Studios crew. Plus, if you buy the whole case of Youngblood card boxes, you are guaranteed a full-size sky disc of Bad Rock that is sealed in plastic. Whoop-dee-doo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Joy. Joy, joy, joy. What are you going to do? 
Want to get that SkyDisc? Buy a whole case of Youngblood cards and sell it on eBay now for $30 a pack. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, he will remain nameless forever in my mind. Boy, I, I want that guy. The guy with the... With the tiny what? feet guy. Yeah, who yeah. are they going to hang out with if they won the contest? Is Extreme Studios even a thing anymore? How much longer does it no, last? No, but all, all of his guys went on to do some work in comics and other industries. But in bigger news, Fleer is releasing a set called Marvel Metal Cards that is made up entirely of chase cards. Then why are they chase if they're entirely <laughs> That seems ridiculous. Every card in the series is engraved, 3D printed, and prismatic foil. What? They've gotten rid of the gimmick covers. They've got gimmick cards now. Foil stamped and laminated and never biodegradable. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about overkill. Adam has been waiting his entire life. What do you got? All right. This is something we have been building to this because we talk about how much everybody collected cards. At some point, they were just, they were a huge industry. Fleer just got so greedy that they created this set. And this is what drove me out of collecting trading cards because my comic habit was funded by my dad. So he would take me to the comic store, give me some money. I'd buy my comics, but action figures, getting any of the trading cards, things like that, that was all my money. So I'd have to do chores, whatever. Right. And so I was buying my trading cards. Going to the pharmacy, going to wherever I could. Going to the five and dime and getting a, <laughs> a, a snickerdoodle in a walking a mile in the snow. <laughs> but this was the thing: like these cards were so ridiculous because there was the 138 card set. Already, that is so many cards. 138 cards to buy. The art was not great. Not only that, they had two subsets. There was a 138-card Silver Flasher set, which is exactly the same as the regular cards, except the background is silver. Then they had 18 Metal Blasters, Gold <laughs> Blasters. I gotta, I gotta stop you. I gotta, we got the Silver Flashers and the Gold <laughs> Blasters. It's just like... Come on. It was so bad. So I bought like, I probably bought like 10 packs of these. And I, they're saying here they only went for like two forty nine at retail. The store I bought them from was selling them for five bucks a pack and they were in a glass case. I had to ask for them. And I was so mad every time I'm spending five bucks for these cards. So I still have them in my binder here. It is an incomplete set because you would get a silver flasher and then you'd get a regular card and then you'd get a gold one. And it was it was the most frustrating thing. There was no way you, you would have to buy like an entire case of these boxes to you know mix and match and finally get an entire set and i said i will never buy trading cards again if this is where the industry is going i am not interested and they drove me out because i'm sure the philosophy was well kids buy a million packs to get chase cards what if they were all chase cards and we just up the price and they're guaranteed to get that and just the hubris of that you know like you guys know me like i could normally laugh off just the the silliness of the industry at this time but this just upset me so much like as a kid you know that disappointment you feel you're like oh it's not just for fun anymore really they just want to take my money and so that was it that was like that was the year i could say in 1995 i stopped buying trading cards they took away something from me that was just my hobby and they ruined it wow 
wow, you they wow. broke you. They actually yeah. broke you. Holy cow. You're I find that. It's yeah, really. I, the, the fury. I've never heard this before. This side of you is It's been hiding out in me for twenty odd years, guys. Time it's to let it out. Boring. It's very boring. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Well, yeah, but so they definitely overhyped what they were selling, but we're going to talk about some other guys know their way around the hype. It's time for Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. So this is actually pretty hilarious. Joe Casada, there he is again, writes in a joke letter to the Magic Words column addressed to Todd McFarlane, and he is mocking the image founder for using his ego column in Wizard to promote Spawn Comics and Toys instead of giving his general, you know, editorialized thoughts on the comic book industry. And so this is what Joe Casada has to say. Todd, after reading the last two installments of your ego column, I must admit I'm slightly perplexed. When the column first appeared, you treated readers to your ideas, expressions, and opinions delivered with the twisted Toddy Bombast we'd grown to know and love. Or hate. But I digress. The columns were designed to entertain us, and most importantly, to make us think. Lately, however, you've given us nothing but breakdowns on what is happening over at Todd McFarlane Productions, followed by a sundry list of all the other stuff and products you have in the works. Your column has become nothing more than an extension of the Spawn Letters page, a free Todd McFarlane Productions advertisement, if you will. That would be like me writing a letter in response to an editorial to a prominent industry fanzine and then somehow twisting it around in order to blatantly trumpet the virtues of my new comic, Ash, from Event Comics, the second issue of which will be hitting the shelves any day now. It would be like me telling you about my character, who's a cool dude and has a fireman actor ego, effectively making him a hero 24 hours a day. Uh, But you won't ever find me doing any sort of shameless self-promotion like that involving Ash, my new comic, that is. Uh, If you're really lucky, you can still find a copy at your local retailer. Anyway, in regards to your last couple of columns, I think you should change the name from Ego, Everyone's Got Opinions, to Plug, Penciler Limelight's Upcoming Goods. Sounds perfect, don't you think? Joe Casada, Event Comics. Uh, P.S. Todd, Spawn looks great, but don't forget to pick up Ash at your local comic store. Ash is a really fun character who rides a really cool motorcycle, and Event Comics promises that Ash will be bi-monthly, for the time being, and that we're gonna try to keep the numbering consecutive for your collecting convenience. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the ego column this month, maybe Todd saw that ahead of time because he gets sincere and nostalgic as he recounts his own origin story in reading and collecting comics as a 17-year-old in 1978, who on an impulse picked up a handful of Marvel books at a local store where he usually bought ice cream. (laughs) Soon, he was totally obsessed buying every Marvel title each month, eventually picking up DC because he had read everything from Marvel, and then by the 80s, he had branched out to reading every single comic available. Todd claims, quote, if there were 800 comics out that month, I owned 800 books. He even paid for his college tuition by working in a comic book store. So what stopped his collecting? Going pro. Todd declares, quote, after you put in 8 to 10 hours of drawing a comic book, the last thing you want to do is go to a comic shop and buy some comics. 
So isn't that an interesting journey? Like obsessive, obsessive, buying everything. Yeah, that's that's got to be pricey. Even by 90s standard. Now, in Jim Lee news, the still odd sabbatical artist has had enough time to judge the entrance in the Win Jim Lee's Art Table contest, with the lucky artist being Kenneth Rockefort from Puerto Rico. Just imagine, like, the shipping cost on that delivery. (laughs) (laughs) Setting it on a boat, you have to send this giant art table. But Jim Lee praises Kenneth and literally says, quote, ready to give him work. Want to see panel-to-panel work. I want to know if you ever made the cut. Go check your Wild Sword comics for Kenneth Rockefort. And let us know, geeks. We gotta know. This guy go pro? Personally, I don't think he has the best art, but Jim Lee really likes it. So, there you go. Of course, I just quickly have to mention a two-page ad for the ongoing Gen 13 series, which is launching this month from Jim Lee's Wildstorm Studios, and that means the return of the Gen 13 line to the mini-episodes in the near future. In fact, the next issue of Wizard Sports, a classic Gen 13 cover. I'm very excited, but let's get to the tally. In this issue, Jim Lee mentioned four times todd doubles it up with eight which brings our total to jim lee 255 mentions todd mcfarland 262 how about it gentlemen how about it is right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's something it's a long tally <laughs> Well, I say we wrap it up with a, a little bit of fun, a little bit of humor. So, Michael, why don't you take us into Turok's Top Ten for February of 1995. The top 10 most noticeable changes in the Ultraverse since Marvel bought Malibu. Number 10, X-Mantra. Number 9, Ultraforce renamed Ultraforce Works. <laughs> Number 8, Stan Lee now runs around saying, I'm in the prime of my life. Number 7, Thor in Godwheel, but no one notices. <laughs> <laughs> Number 6. Prime's evil clone works smoothly into continuity. (laughs) Oh, that's Spider Clone. Top and bottom of this episode. That joke will never cease being funny to them. Number five. Two words. Ultraverse Deluxe. Do you guys get that one? No. No. So, Marvel at this time, they were trying to follow on the heels of Image in improving their paper quality, but you had to pay more, just like an Image book cost more. So they had the newsstand edition that was still on, you know, newsprint, and then they had the deluxe edition that was printed on glossy paper. So that's what they're saying. Interesting. History! Number four. Sludge forgotten as quickly as Man-Thing. I would agree, probably. I don't even know who Sludge is. Number three, all the good artists and writers left. (laughs) And number two, Prime Skin, a symbiote from Beyonder's World. It's actually pretty good. (laughs) Not going to lie. Number one, all Ultraverse movies now destined to bite. (laughs) (laughs) Because Marvel had not made a decent film up to this point. Isn't that ironic? But, like, the Ultraverse line bites anyway, so what are you going to do? Like, I don't know. Prime is terrible. 
but not long for this world in this era, but we'll have to get into that another time because we are wrapping up episode 43 of Wizard. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for being a part of the Wizards community. And hey, welcome in to all of those of you who have been contacting us on social media saying you just discovered the show with a little help from our friends over at Toy Galaxy. Glad to have you on board. A lot of these people going back to listen from the beginning. You've got a journey ahead of you, I will tell you. <laughs> There's a lot of twists and turns of that so it's gonna be fun for you but hey michael steven what are you guys looking forward to the uh, weekend so, yeah sleeping <laughs> the week- everybody's working for the weekend <laughs> halloween halloween i'm looking forward to yeah that's exciting and just a reminder if you guys haven't checked out our youtube video where michael and i went through all the halloween costumes for the 1994 season uh, in Wizard Magazine. We had a lot of fun talking about, you know, the early days of cosplay. That was a good conversation there. Of course, we have more episodes of The Wizard Files to come. By this point, you've heard our interview with Scott Beatty, the original editor of Toy Fair. Boy, did he go on to write some really cool books after that as a comics pro. So if you haven't listened to that one just yet, check it out. And in the meantime, we want you to stay in touch with us on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter. Twitter at wizards underscore comics on Instagram. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.